0: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where, not really each week, but eventually, at some point in a week, I celebrate all of the acting choices, micro-moments, and the magic of the minutia that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker, and your name refuses to quit being Barbara Bel Geddes, and this week uh, we have uh, we have a couple of fun things we're going to talk about. I mostly want to dive into, and it almost feels like old news, but who knows when you're listening to this, but I mostly want to dive into the Netflix movie Wine Country, which of course was directed by and starring Amy Poehler, and it's sort of a a who's who of SNL alums, Rachel Dretch, Maya Rudolph, Anna Gasteyer. But in particular, I just really want to talk about one, maybe two scenes from Wine Country, because... uh, I don't know if this is necessarily spoiler alert. I think this is more of an act one gun. Wine Country is not, it's not the movie it could have been, right? Let's just say that at the outset, and then we'll move on, and we'll go back to it, and we'll talk about it, but it could have been better. That being said, it has two, it has one brilliant moment, and then one like, oh, that's great two moment. Anyway. That's wine country. First, though, I can't find like a contextual connection between these between wine country and and the first thing I want to talk about. And I don't think you need one. I just I don't think you're asking for one. So I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. But I want to talk about Midsummer, which, of course, it just came out uh, at the beginning of July. It's the writing and directorial follow up by Ari Aster to Hereditary. It's not. I don't. There's no like storyline or like world of hereditary that connects to Midsummer. Or maybe there is. I don't know. There's definitely moments that are reminiscent of each other. There's certainly performances that are reminiscent of each other. So um, let's just get into it. Let's just. I, I don't have. I wish this was like a Midsummer episode. And while this is not, I know that my um, my good friends at Gaylords of Darkness stacy and anthony have just put out their latest episode this week as i'm recording this which i haven't even listened to yet but i know it's about midsummer and i know from from the social media that anthony really enjoyed it so my sense is that it is a it is a celebration of midsummer and so and i'm sure they go it's like suspiria they they're gonna find all of the layers all of the nuances all of the all of the themes, they're so good at like dissecting all of that and still being weird and funny and bonkers. And so if you are not, I don't want to say a crossover, but maybe I was on their podcast once. But uh, if you're not a crossover listener of Gaylords of Darkness, you totally should go listen to them. I still think they're two of my favorite podcasters and still consistently put out a really fun wackadoo show, even when they're like, not even talking about anything. Like I I think they might worry that people don't like that. I love it. I think it goes back to like you don't really listen for the content after a while. You listen to hear what these two people have to say. So anyway, but I'm sure you're listening to this for the content. So, when we get to it. What I'm trying to say here is that I'm I'm not going to go deep into Midsummer, but just some like surface thoughts because it is much like hereditary. There is so much going on in this movie. I, in some ways, I'd almost say that It's even more ambitious than Hereditary in terms of, like, the themes that it's exploring. Both movies are really a real study in grief, and I love that. I love that in these two movies, and I haven't—of Ari Aster's movies, uh, obviously these are his his only feature films, but he has a couple of short films that came out in the past 10, 15 years or so. I've only seen The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which is on YouTube, I think, and it is— it's yeah, it's pretty twisted. I think if you don't know anything about it, I would recommend just watching it not knowing what you're getting into. Unless oh, I don't know. I feel like now you kind of got to like give people warnings, but if I give you a warning then like you know what? Let's just let's just say this. You're the regulator of your own experience. If you think watching something is going to trigger something in you, then just go read the wikipedia of it. Decide if you want to watch it and then watch it anyway. And then if you are like, yeah, whatever, Um, show me, let me just see what it is, then just go watch it. The one thing I'll tell you, because I I would not want you to walk into this trap, um, no animals are harmed in The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. There's no dead dogs. There's none of that. There is some violence. I'll I'll tell you that. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, I I appreciate in his first two feature films how he is – Exploring grief in the world of a horror movie. And in some ways, it's a horror movie in the world of grief, right? Like, I think hereditary, in some ways, I think almost his intention in the beginning was hereditary to really be this like family drama. And that's certainly how it feels, right? Like, the first 45 minutes are like the most unbearable family drama. You know, I'm done. Like, at that point, my goose is cooked. I finally finished a second viewing of *Hereditary* like in the past month or so, and once Ann Dowd shows up and like, once stuff starts getting spooky, it at least moves away from Tony Collette like sobbing, "Oh God, it hurts. This is gonna kill me." On the bedroom floor after finding her daughter's decapitated body in the back seat of her car, you know, like at least it's not that. I- now that if you haven't seen *Hereditary*. I mean that is obviously a huge spoiler but like at this point folks come on I, I I totally recommend it after watching it a second time I totally still recommend seeing this movie for as dark as it is because obviously because of Toni Collette I mean first and foremost like let's just let's just say that that she has obviously some great scenes the I'm your mother scene the bedroom floor scene but I really forgot how she She is acting so hard in this entire movie. She's acting in every scene. And I mean, like, acting with a capital A. And I don't mean over the top. I mean, like, right to the edge. And the more that it goes on, the more that you kind of, like, appreciate why, it it adds something to the overall movie that she she is becoming so unhinged. And yet it's not... For as big as she's being, I don't feel like the un- the unhingedness is being played up too much. Does that make sense? Where Tony Collette is finding the levels that keep it in the in reality, but we're watching this this character, this woman, just come apart at every scene possible. And I think that balance—that's what's so impressive about Tony Collette—is that she she manages to hold water in her palm. You know what I mean? Like she manages to to maintain structure and maintain control over this totally wackadoo performance. And I, I just really, um, I admire that. And I have to say, to kind of bridge over to Midsummer. I mean, I, I don't want to say though like, I, I would love to believe that Ari Aster, like every movie he has, it's just going to feature... A, a woman of whatever age with blonde hair who is just going to be wrung out like a dish rag by the end of the movie. I know that sounds like misogynistic. As I said that, I realized what that sounded like. But I want to just clarify: is I want more platforms for actresses to just impress the hell out of us with their ability to portray profoundly deep emotions in the world of horror. Does that? I think that's that's very much more what I'm trying to say here, and. Obviously, Tony Collette robbed the Oscars. You know, we, we we kept crying poor Glenn, but let's get it straight here, and don't even get me on a tangent about Olivia Coleman right now. No, put a pin in that. I've been watching Broadchurch. We should talk about that as well. Um, but if if there is kind of a fixture in Ari Aster's movies of this this trope, let's call it that, then uh, Florence Pugh, I believe that's how you say her last name we'll just call her Florence, um, flow flossy. One of those things. She, she's not listening. Uh, but if, if, uh, if that is something that he's doing, she is picking up the torch in, in midsummer in a way that is just so impressive. I, it. I, I, I I, I'm, like, speechless here because I think what I, what I love, what I love about this character and I love about the writing and the direction, absolutely, and the performance is just all of the attention to detail. that Like, Danny is not a perfect character. She is not totally reliable, at, you know, and she's not also totally annoying or totally difficult. Like, she, we ultimately sympathize with her, but I think we're, we also struggle with her. And struggle in her presence, you know, like, it's just like, oh, God, girl, like, pull it together. But also, like, oh, God, girl, like, you you are just, I just feel so awful for you. Because I don't want to spoil Midsummer. Here's the thing is, because it came out recently, and I don't know when you're listening to this, I don't want to spoil it. Gaylords of Darkness, I'm sure, in order to talk about it the way they want to talk about it, they're going to lay out all the details. So you, I would say that you probably should watch it anyway to listen to them. And then so I can talk about it in more detail. You can let me know you've seen it, and then I'll do oh, – no, I'm just kidding. But um, I'm not going to spoil it, but I am going to say this. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. The sequence in the beginning, the sort of opening act of *Midsummer*, is – De- to me is the and, – and this is a big statement because there's another moment later that I think most people would say is like the most haunting. But to me, this is the most haunting part of the movie. It If the first 45 minutes of Hereditary are like the hardest part, the first 10, 15 minutes of Midsummer are easily the hardest part. The, the visual tableau that he creates is like – I just can't shake it. I just like can't get it out of my brain. I, it's so awful, and I appreciate the you know the the sort of cerebral power that it takes to come up with this shit. You know, like the strange case of you know the strange thing about the Johnsons, the the whole conceit behind the that movie, like the whole reason that it got written and made was it came out of a conversation of just like unimaginable taboos and it's like just going as dark as you can go and i get that i think that's really interesting i don't love when that involves like extensive violence though it kind of seems like one begets the other in most cases but i appreciate kind of going to those places of like if we could just be objective and look at these as storyline threads what would be the most like fucked up story we could tell And well that also sounds kind of fucked up of me to say. I think that it really just comes from being interesting, telling like when you when you when you go there, when you tell those stories, I think there's truths that come out. I think there's versions of 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 a story we've seen before that come out. And I think in the case of Midsummer, by setting up such a god awful set piece in the beginning, the foundation that it gives Danny for the rest of the movie, like we feel what she's feeling, because we have had her, we've had her darkness rubbed in our faces, you know, and so her grief, her continued grief throughout this movie, is it all always makes sense, you know, like the weight of it never leaves us either, and that's to say that also that her performance of grief, there's so many, I I so want a supercut in Midsummer of how many times. Florence Pugh like walked away you know kind of trying to stop her face from breaking in like a full a full tilt sob you know or just how many moments she her the the anguish kind of just like spread across her face like a rash like it just so many times she gets a similar like painful to listen to and watch crying scene as Tony Collette has in Hereditary it's it almost feels like a nod to it you know and so there's that we definitely get a lot of we get a lot of crying and yeah i mean i'm 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 just thinking i'm it, it, we shouldn't compare but i who who goes through the ringer more is the question i'm trying to get to and if you've seen both hereditary and midsummer this is what i want to know and you can tweet me at colin drucker you can email me at in the details pod at gmail.com i want to know if this trope of putting his lead actresses through the ringer, this this Lars von Trierian trope of his, is in fact you know checking out, who do you think got wrung out more, Tony Collette or Florence Pugh? My, I'm thinking it might be Tony Collette, but I don't know. I don't know. I think you know it, it's just it's just comparing two different apples with awful worms in them, you know. But curious, your thoughts. Overall, though, and maybe the reason why I'm leaning towards Tony Collette is that Midsummer is not as dark of a movie, literally and thematically, or or um, not thematically, but the tonally. It's it definitely plays like a dark comedy. That was like of the few things I knew about it before seeing it. I had seen Ari Aster saying, uh, you know, sort of wanting people to to think of this movie as a black comedy, and. I guess I'm kind of glad I knew that because I think I would have been really thrown off, especially after how dark the opening is, to see kind of how many comedic beats are played in the rest of the movie. But uh, it, it works. It totally works. I'm not a big fan of the uh, comedy horror mix. I just, when someone says, oh, it's a horror comedy, I'm like, oh God, oh God, here we You know, it's just going to be like a smart-talking zombie. You know what I mean? Or it's just going to be like some Shaun of the Dead wannabe filmed on someone's camcorder. Are we still using camcorders? You know what I mean? I Just horror comedy, it's kind of like when someone says, oh, do you want to come see my improv show? You're you're, you're rolling a big old dice, girl. Like, it could be good. Mm -hmm, But it probably won't be. So that's kind of... um, my feeling on horror comedies, comedy horror, whatever. So anyway, I appreciated kind of the, the, the lightening of tone. And I think it worked because it created this real contrast for when things got really fucked up and got really dark. There is one sequence, which if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That is uh, extremely violent. And I, I watched through my hands. Very, very graphic. I should say just very, very graphic not, yeah, violent isn't the word, right? I think that's certainly the point that they're trying to make in the movie, too. But I think it's kind of fair to say that it's not violent, it's graphic. Well, there's that part. But is, you know, you know what I mean? Like, is it, there's another question for you. If you've seen Midsummer, is that moment violent or just graphic? I don't know. I'm just posing these questions, thought starters. I just love to hear from you guys. So, um, not in a lonely way, just like a, oh, yeah, what do you think? So, Other, I guess the only the only other thing I'll say about Midsummer, and then let's move on, um, because again, Gaylords of Darkness will will cover the the nuances. Is what I I want to see it again, of course, but I think there's a part of me that uh there's a part of me that kind of wishes that things went a little more bonkers in Midsummer. I think in comparison, the last like ten minutes of Hereditary. Are fucking bonkers, and I kind of forgot that the first time from the first time I saw it, partially because through most of the second half of the movie I had to pee so bad. So by the end I was like, "Oh my god, just go in the treehouse and find out what's going on," you know. And so now I really watched it and appreciated it. And oh god, oh god, it's such. a I don't. It, there's flaws to it, right? Like there's there's definitely a lot of kind of quickly wrapping up with a bit of a monologue, and that kind of happens in *Midsummer* too. You get a lot of explanation towards the end of what they couldn't really just like show and embed into the movie. It's fine, whatever. Rosemary's Baby did the same thing. I'm not furious at it. But I think what I like about that bonkers 10 minutes of, of Hereditary at the end is at that point you're so wrung out that you basically are tony collette just like floating up in you know out of the house you know what i mean like you're just up there at the roof with the with the piano wire you know what i mean like you're just you're just a, a a bag in the in the wind by that point in the movie and so then it all just goes off the rails and i just think it's a it's such a delirious experience and i i don't know i appreciated i appreciated the effect of that watching that again i kind of wish things Things got a little wackadoo in Midsummer. There's certainly a um, bit of a ritual that happens, which again, oh my god, there's so many. There's you can see all of Ari Aster's references, and here, I mean, there's a there's definitely almost like a Rosemary's Baby moment, you know, vibe to all of this. This one moment that yeah gets a little bonkers, and it sets off Danny's character to have you know another one of these profoundly emotional scenes that then turns into and if you've seen again if you've seen the movie you know what I'm talking about but it becomes this like community grieving moment and it's so cool and i i love i love the 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 concept of grief being a shared experience and i think the moral of the story to me like what i took away from midsummer was that Trying to navigate or trying to deal with your demons on your own will could lead to one god awful you know result. But even though it's totally unorthodox and not conventional and kind of fucked up in some ways, in certain contexts, the the way that this community deals with grief, or the way a community can deal with grief and can navigate grief with you, is it's transformative you know, to have rituals around grief, to have rituals around, around everything. I don't know. Like, I just, I, I really appreciated all of that. And so while all of that was great, I, like seeing all of that and, and getting kind of all of that out of what had happened, I guess I just wish that it still all went to a 27, just a little bit more. Because even the climax, which is pretty like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I guess I have to see it again you know? But I guess, what can I say? I love a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love a movie that just ends in chaos. You know? I love the end of Carrie. It's just chaos. So, I just wanted a little more chaos in this movie. Also, like, not for nothing, but there's definitely that feeling of, like, I would have left this place a long time ago. It was possible someone could take you to the train or whatever. I would have just left. But that's just me to be honest, I probably wouldn't have gone in the first place because I'd be very nervous about what the bathroom situation is. I do not need to navigate that. Anyway, those are my overall thoughts on Midsummer. I totally recommend seeing it. It's a long movie, but I have to say like that's not that that's like saying oh there's subtitles. It's like come on. It's kind of like Suspiria. Suspiria is a long movie, and I think that the length contributes to the experience. I think you're you're in it for the long haul let's shift gears no connection whatsoever as i said to what as i also said before is not a great movie but it has some great elements and that's of course wine country so wine country was directed by amy poehler and it was co-written by emily spivey who plays who's in the movie as well i can't remember her name i have imdb open because i'm trying to like Not just sit here and go, oh, who was that? What was her name? Like, I can look it up. I have everything in front of me. Anyway, she plays Jenny, who I I loved. It's actually funny because she, she, (laughs) her character had, like, the same thing of, like, oh, my God, using other people's bathrooms. Like, she was very reticent about going to this, like, foreign house. Anyway, uh, so, and it's, the, the cast itself is just, like, a host of 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 funny, funny women. There's Rachel Tratch, Anna star, Maya Rudolph, Paula Pell, who's just like, if you don't know who Paula Pell is, like she's, I mostly knew her, I think I'd mostly seen her as Pete's wife in 30 Rock, which is a very small role that only shows up in sh- certain scenes. I think she, I think she's written and directed episodes as well. Like she's very much been behind the scenes with SNL and 30 Rock. She is so fucking funny. I, uh, I, she is to me, like this is who I want to see as, like, a celebrity in Hollywood is Paula Pell. That's my—it sounds, like sounds like I'm talking about a man named Paul LaPell, but it's Paula Pell. Gotta get it right. Uh, of course, Tina Fey is in it in kind of a weird role. So is—oh, uh. Oh, what's her name? Cherry Jones is in it. And I kind of feel like Cherry Jones should have been playing Tina Fey's role. Tina Fey plays the kind of butch owner of the house who, you know, checks in on them and has some meaningful moments, and just kind of a weirdo. It, it's, a, it's a weird role. It's a weird role, and I kind of think Cherry Jones should have done it and someone else should have played Lady Sunshine, the tarot card reader. I, uh, I also very much appreciated uh, Maya Erskine, who, uh, of course, is one of the brilliant minds and uh, actors behind Pen15. And she plays a love interest, a lesbian love interest, which is cute, to Paul Lappel, to Mr. Paul Lapel. Uh And I also love the inclusion of Jason Green in a very small role. I think they had like two lines and just stole the show. Jason Green. I want more of Jason Green in things. Jason Green played Freckle in, oh, damn it, I looked it up before and I forgot. But in any event, just look up Jason Green with an E at the end and you'll be so glad. Oh, Brené Brown has a cameo. I mean like let's just let's just appreciate that. So, I mean like all of the elements are there and not for nothing, I'm not like a huge Jason Schwartzman fan. I'm not like a anti-Jason Schwartzman person, but it's not like I run to the theaters because Jason Schwartzman's in a movie, but there's something about him in this movie. I don't know what it is. I would I would let him do whatever he wanted for like 45 minutes. I just, I don't know what to say. Uh, And then I'd never call him. I don't think he'd call me either. I I think he wouldn't have a phone. So the character in the movie, more so than the actor, I'm sure Jason Schwartzman has like an iPhone. There was something about Wine Country. I don't know. You know, it felt off it's a very easy movie to watch it's easy to put on in the background now that i've seen it it's kind of comfortable because it's full of familiar faces and they're all fine you know the performances aren't none of them are bad you know i mean maya rudolph is essentially she's she's i don't know she's i was gonna say she's essentially like playing a version of her character in bridesmaids and maybe she kind of is like an older version of that character but it's really charming and I, I don't know, I really like her and see, I think Rachel Dratch she's not much of a dramatic actress, right but she's she's got her moments but sometimes lines sound a little clunky coming out of her mouth. It's kind of like Tammy Brown doing like a really straight drag. It's like, well, this just isn't the drag you do honey, you know And uh, you know Paula Pell's great. Emily Spivey's pretty good like you know that's so mean. everyone's great. she's pretty good. No, she's great. I don't want to shit on the movie. I just think that the script is a little clunky. There's a lot of kind of clunky exposition at the beginning. Some of the conflicts feel sort of interesting, but shoehorned in for the purpose of, of showing women having a specific conflict. You know, I think there's, it doesn't, it just doesn't flow. In, it, it feels like a lot more like there's these, these beats that it's trying to hit, and it's hitting them really hard and not always square on. Now, I'd love to just keep shitting on this movie that's basically, you know, made by women, you know, almost—not exclusively, but, like, quite a fair bit. I want to be supportive of that. I want to be supportive of of all of these actresses. But I just—I think that—I don't know. It just missed the mark for me, except for one scene, and then maybe one other. So let's just say this. My opinion is that Amy Poehler is the best actress in this movie— And I think of kind of like that generation of Saturday Night Live women, she is one of the best actresses. And it's kind of a surprise in a way because I think that Molly Shannon's really great. Uh, That movie, Other People, so, so good. Totally recommend it. I think that Kristen Wiig is great. Like, I think she's kind of like, holy shit. Uh, I'd love to see Kristen Wiig win an Oscar one day, you know? I think that'd be really interesting. I mean, really, like... So many, like Maya Rudolph, she, I, I just saw the first episode of that show forever, and she's so, she's with Fred Armisen, and she's so charming, and she's so natural, and so good, and I'm excited to kind of see where the show goes. So like, it's kind of hard to pick out like a shining star, but Amy Poehler, there's, there's something that she does, and I think it's because I also watched Parks and Rec a few times over, so I've really kind of gotten to see her a lot, is that she is so good at walking that line between like real emotions and like the absurd the absurdity that you can weave into real emotions or the way that you can wrap absurdity in real emotions i think that she finds that balance and maybe that's really what the problem was with wine country is it needed to find more of that balance and I think one example of where this this really works is this one scene where her character Abby has kind of a meltdown because she's kind of a control freak and things are not going according to plan and then that really kind of dovetails with the reality that her whole life is not going according to plan and then she has you know a classic meltdown a classic storm off and then turn around and meltdown here's what's really going on kind of moment uh, and so I'm of course gonna play this for you now. But what I love about this, and there's there's a bit of this here and there in Parks and Rec, is Amy Poehler is so good at talking through tears. She's just so good at it. She finds these little nuances here and there. She finds these uh, these places to kind of compress the word or or for. Um, parts of the sentence to get caught in her throat, or to kind of go to a head voice or a chest voice. I, she finds these interesting levels where it's like Meryl does this, where th- there's this like, it's not just now I have saline running down my cheeks and I'm kind of you know garbling my voice like this. Like she's not performing crying; she's really fucking doing it, and she, I, I I just really I appreciate what the balance that she's striking in this moment with like how upset she is and and what she's saying in this state and i i think this is an example of what i wish the movie was able to do more of i'm sorry let's not fight this time together is supposed to be special. Oh, God, Naomi, we're not fighting. We're just talking. That's what life is. Well, it's very negative. No, well, life is negative. That's what Brene Brown said. That's exactly what she did not say. I mean, what is negative in your life right now? Okay, you've, you've got amazing friends. you got a great career. No, I don't. Okay? I lost my job. All right? And it's really stupid to even cry about it. Shit. I mean, people are starving in the world, and there's earthquakes and people are shooting at each other and I'm crying about my stupid poor job. Oh, Abby, honey, that doesn't mean your feelings aren't valid. That's exactly what white privilege is. Plus, what are we doing? I mean, like, just from the beginning, that like, no, I don't, and the way that her voice breaks, even in there, it's, and she has this hand gesture. It's just like this, this sort of like halting hand gesture. It, it, it just, it, it just works so well. And I think when she gets that almost like that climactic moment of like, and there's like one rhinoceros left, and she says it like so heartfelt. I think that's brilliant. I think that she found such pathos in something not ridiculous, but kind of in the moment, like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's prioritize things, right? And I I just think that is that is an expert moment. So that being said, my absolute favorite moment in this movie, and really, to be honest, like, the reason to see this movie is the scene between Abby and Jason Schwartzman's character, Devin. And so Devin is kind of like the houseboy. He's he's cooking this big paella for them. He takes them on a wine tour. Like, he's their, he's their guy. And one night, he comes to Abby's bedroom, and he's, you know, been working on the big paella. And at this point, Abby, she's in her bed, and she's about to put on her sleep apnea mask. So, you know, and this is after this meltdown that we just, that we just talked about. And so she's about to put on her very sexy CPAP mask, and Devin is kind of standing in the door, kind of leans against the door jam. And I just think, like, the moment you lean against my door jam, you, you better be careful, because I'll be like one of those gecko tongues, and I will just I'll snap you. Um, and the way he was doing it, like I think he crossed a leg at some point. I don't know. It was great. So he tells Abby that the paella is simmering. It's going to take a little bit longer than expected, and there's really no like sexual chemistry between them. I mean, again, let me just mention the CPAP machine is on. She is ready to put the mask on. I am not judging anybody who's got sleep apnea, but, I mean, you might also think, like, yeah, not not sexy time. I don't know. I've never navigated that space, but in any event. So Devin kind of looks at her, and that's when he then leans in the door, does the door jam thing. And then he just kind of casually asks her, you know, any chance you'd want to have sex? And that's when it then... And I should, I should mention, it's not as creepy as it may sound. I, it works for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know. It works. Because it doesn't feel like he's being forceful. And I guess to be real, like, a woman wrote this, a woman directed this scene. Like, I, I just feel like there's this choice being made about how to present this. I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting conversation point, you know, of, of how to present this kind of scenario where sex is still part of the equation, but... Um, and where the where the guy is the aggressor but is not being predatory but I don't know, his character's kind of creepy and that's kind of the idea he's kind of a weird guy but I think I think the, the idea here, what they're really exploring is like like no, I think nobody has asked her that question if ever it has been a while at the very least you know what I mean? I think that's what's really happening here and the shot cuts back to her and it's this kind of, it's just really, you know, I wish I knew how to describe these in a technical way, but maybe you don't know like those technical terms. So it's probably better that I just talk about it this way, but we really are just seeing her face and like half the frame and she's, and she's not staring right into the camera. It, it, it's sort of like she's, she's staring at him as if she has just gotten a couple shots of Novocaine in her mouth. And it's like her lip is almost... Her mouth is almost hanging open just slightly to one side in this kind of like, huh, kind of way. And she's just got this like dead look in her eye, just staring at him. And she's just staring. And it's so, it reminds me of Nicole Kidman in Birth, which I talked about in the very first episode of In the Details, where there's that slow like, zoom in and just focus on her processing what's just happened before that moment with the, with the kid saying that he's her reincarnated dead husband. And again with that scene and with this there isn't a whole hell of a lot actually happening. There's isn't this like complex Tony Collette, Florence Pugh, you know, face journey happening. It's all of these little shifts and so because so little is happening but we're spending so much time in this like there's, there's like definitely an emotional state on her face, right? We're spending concentrated time with this state. She's not acting away from it. The, the story isn't moving past how long this might take her to process. She blinks in total twice in all of this, and it's because it, the shot is cut. It cuts back to Devin at one point. So there's this first chunk. You get, you get one blink, and because there's so little that happens, that blink feels so significant. And so then it cuts back to him and, oh, this is when he, like, like looks, he, like, sort of, is, like, looking at a hangnail on his nail or, or he, like, bites his fingernail a little bit. And it's just, like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. It's just a really sexy gesture. And then it cuts back to her and she still just has this look that I think is, it's this mix of being dumbfounded and being kind of, like translating translating not only what somebody's asked her but what it would mean how long it's been since she's had sex what it would feel like to get that kind of like i don't know that that pleasure in her life like this is someone who has seen all of these sources of pleasure and joy kind of evade her and who's tried to control where her pleasure is going to come from and where other people's pleasure is going to come from and she's scheduled it down to the minute and now there's this surprise offer for sex this surprise opportunity that she didn't plan for and i think it's also like she's lost her job she her life feels like it's swerved into a ditch and this might not be the kind of guy that she'd sleep with in any other time in her life and maybe ever again but I don't know, I understand that idea of like, you know what, right now, I think this is exactly what I need. I don't know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And so she blinks again, and then after that blink, I think that's because, again, at this point, this, is, I, this whole face journey, I mean, this is like, I don't want to say a minute, it's like 30 seconds or something, but it's long. Like, you definitely feel that we are we are spending time in this moment it is a featured moment and after that second blink that the fact that it continues even longer that's where i'm like ooh now you have crossed into some fucking territory like when when a when a shot is held at a certain point where all of a sudden you notice it. I think it's kind of like weightlifting, where you're doing 10 reps, but it's the last two that really hurt. That's really where, I don't know if I could do these last two. That's where you do all the work. And I think this scene, it's similar where when after that second blink, then it's like, oh my God, it's still going on. And then there's, then there's the blink, and there's like a blink and nod that breaks it. And she says, fine, uh, fine. Like, it's just like, okay sure like as if someone had asked her do you want fries with that and it just took her a really long time to get there and again the economy of that like just that small response I think the fact that that's how she responds I think the fact that she does say yes I think the story that we don't know of what goes on in her head in, the, in that moment in that scene of all the things that she's processing or what is coming up for her and how she finally got to that yes or if she even got to it if it just came out and she she broke out of the trance and all of a sudden she found herself saying yes. Like, I, I, I appreciated in this otherwise light, but with some, you know, heavier themes, but mostly like, you know, uh, you know, get together with your friends and drink wine and watch this movie about a bunch of friends who get together and drink wine. You know what I'm saying? That kind of movie. I, I was impressed with the the choice here it was very Ari Aster of of Amy Poehler because of course she's obviously the focus of the scene but she's also the director and I love that she kind of gave herself that moment I I don't begrudge that in the least I think what she did was like let me find a moment here to like have a have a shining moment of acting for myself for a woman for for a character that people aren't taking seriously I just I thought that was so cool I think that's when I think of actors who are directing things, like I appreciate, I appreciate when they can apply both of those skills in the very same moment. You know, she she directed herself to some of the best acting I've ever seen Amy Poehler do. I've never seen her, I've never seen her pull this out. I've never seen her get this real and this raw in a way. And I, it just made me really excited about the possibility of her doing some of what Kristen Wiig's done of choosing these dramatic roles and and sort of mining those nuances and because I think that she's fully capable of it. I think that she could do it's like Lisa Kudrow. I think that she can she can do comedy and she can do drama with equal like equal talent because I think she just has a sense of timing and she has an ear for how things should sound, and I think there's a naturalism about her, and I think that it's also, like, I'd like to believe that understanding one imbues you with a deeper understanding of the other. For example, like, I, the Robin Williams, you know, example, I think is, you know, it's kind of where I'm going. It's like, Robin Williams was so fucking funny, but I think the same source that he pulled all of that, all of that brilliance from in comedy, he was pulling all of that brilliance from in drama as well, where it was, I don't know what it was. It just, for some reason, it felt like the fact that he knew how to make something so fucking funny seemed to inform his ability to make something so fucking sad. You know, and some people would say that really it was just a reflection of his own internal pain, and that's a whole tangent. But, you know, that's real too. But I I think that that's always exciting to see a comedic performer be dramatic in a way that doesn't feel ridiculous. And I think that Amy Poehler completely accomplishes that in this moment in wine country and in some great moments in parks and rec you know there's i i what i can immediately off the bat what i can think of which is similar to that talking through tears moment before is when ben proposes to her in season whatever and then she has that moment of like i need to take this in and she's and she's playing that same fine line of of playing real emotions in this kind of absurd moment hey hey coming back here? Oh. What are you doing? Oh my god, what are you doing? I'm thinking about my future. I am deeply ridiculously in love with you. And above everything else, I just I, I want to be with you forever. So, Leslie, nope. Will wait. You... Wait. Okay? okay. Just I need to remember this. Sure. Give me a second. Okay. <sighs> Leslie. No, no 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 no. Hold on. Okay. Just I need another second, please. Okay. I need to remember every little thing about how perfect my life is right now. At this exact moment. Okay. good? Yeah. Okay. I'm good. leslie nope. Will yes. you? Yes. Marry me? Oh yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> to me like if maybe the theme of this episode is tropes and Ari Aster likes to show, you know, uh the, the, the extent of grief and Amy Poehler likes to find this the balance between absurd and and painfully real. I don't know that's that's how I'm going to connect these two here. And you know, hopefully that knot will last. Anyway, I think that is pretty much everything I have to say this week. I, oh my God, I have so many things I want to talk about. There's a scene from Fosse Verdon that I really want to talk about. There's a scene from The Comeback, which I guess would be a continuation of Cherishing Valerie that I've been meaning to do forever. There, I want to talk about Big Little Lies. There's a certain performance in that that I'm really loving, and it might not be the one you're thinking of. Uh, I definitely want to finally talk about Louise Lasser in, in Blood Rage. Uh, which i mentioned probably yonks ago, so you may not have heard me talk about this before. But oh my god, that movie! Oh, perhaps if you have listened to, to the episode of the the Nuancies episode, the theme song from Blood Rage was a um, was a nominated non a nominated Nancy, a nominated Nuancies. So you can go listen to that episode. But anyway, I have all of that planned. I have an episode on Bonkers endings that I've been meaning to talk about. I have. I have a lot, and I'm really dying to, like, get all into them this month. So I'm going to step up my game. I'm going to get into these details. I'm going to celebrate these nuances, micro moments, acting choices. You know what I'm talking about. And I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear what you want to hear me dive into other than these things. I want to hear your thoughts on Midsummer. I want to hear your thoughts on Wine Country. I want to hear your thoughts on Amy Poehler. I just want to hear your thoughts. The way to do that, drop me an email at pod at gmail.com, you are more than welcome to, you know, follow me on Twitter at Colin Drucker and drop me a message there. You can follow me on Instagram at Colin Drucker underscore. You could watch my videos on YouTube. Just look for Colin Drucker. I think I, I have some ideas. Uh, I might start doing those again. So I'm kind of, you know, pumping out the content or at least trying to. Uh, anyway, this has been a hoot. So glad you listened and I plan to be back very soon. So. Until then, um, you know, keep it foxy, womp womp, and uh, I'll see you then. All right, bye.